This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. We'd appreciate if you could rate, review, and subscribe to Polar Geopolitics wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. The updated Arctic policy that the European Union released in October took a surprisingly strong stand on hydrocarbons, stating that coal, oil, and gas should be left in the ground, and also contained stark language that for the first time positioned the European Union as a geopolitical player in the Arctic. Here in episode 39, we'll be speaking with Ambassador Michael Mann, the EU Special Envoy for Arctic Matters, to find out more about the updated policy and how the European Union plans to expand its engagement while becoming more assertive over what it sees as its core interests in the Arctic. I start by asking Ambassador Mann how the new update differs from earlier iterations of EU Arctic policy. Okay, yeah, thanks very much. I mean, we've had three Arctic policy documents before in the EU, 2008, 2012, and 2016. This is number four, uh, and it is we, we do sort of regard it as an updated policy document, but I think it's fair to say that there's been quite a lot of change this time around. I mean, for a start, things have changed and developed so fast in the Arctic region since 2016 that really, you know, there's a need for it to be a little bit more concrete, I suspect. I mean, obviously, climate change has really, really accelerated in, in the Arctic. Uh, we see, you know, the Arctic speed, you know, heating up three times faster than the global average and, you know, the enormous changes that are happening there and all the geopolitical changes that have happened since as well. So we, we set out, um, first of all, we actually had a public consultation to ask, you know, people out there, whether it be governments or companies or lobbies or just individuals, what they thought should be in our Arctic policy and what they thought the uh, priority area should be. In it. And in fact, if you look at it, Compared to our previous paper five years ago, the, the priority areas pretty much stay the same. I mean, you have obviously climate action is kind of the number one thing uh, with more general environmental protection, biodiversity protection. There's the uh, thing about uh, sustainable economic development. And what does that mean? It means bearing in mind that the Arctic is not just an empty area full of polar bears and ice. It's actually a living region with four to five million people there. So we have to try and do what we can do from the EU side to uh, guarantee these people uh, a future, if you like, you know, uh, generate economic activities, but in an environmentally and also socially sustainable way, taking into account the special conditions in the Arctic. And then, you know, there's the big thing of the EU where we're the sort of champions of multilateralism. So it's all about international cooperation in the Arctic as as our sort of bottom line is that we want the Arctic to remain a a peaceful zone of international cooperation. Uh, Underpinning everything we do, as as it was before, is science and research. We have a, a major science and research program called Horizon. And that was, you know, I think we spent about a quarter of a billion euros on Arctic research in the last seven years, and we're expecting to do at least that again. And then, of course, you know, in anything you do in the Arctic, you have to bear in mind the people who live there, in particular the indigenous peoples. They feel that they've had a, a bad deal, probably justifiably feel that way uh, in the past. And we've tried to, uh, you know, obviously as much as we can take into account not only their uh, desires, but also their knowledge, because they do have, of course, uh, unique knowledge that we don't have, and they, they are actually living the changes that are happening in the Arctic. 
But I, but I think the, the big change, really, if you ask about this document compared to what we've done in the past, is that it is much more kind of uh, target orientated, which is possibly a dangerous thing because, you know, it's difficult to, you know, uh, achieve targets in such a moving you know, an area that's changing and moving so much. But we have actually sort of written down a number of things that we concretely want to achieve. Uh, we have a list of things saying that e will, the EU will do the following. And they range from things that, you know, are going to happen reasonably in short order, like setting up a new office of the EU uh, Commission in Greenland, to much more aspirational things. I mean, the thing that really got the headlines, I think, was... Um, uh, our call for oil, coal and gas to stay in the ground, uh, including in the Arctic, but also a specific call for a uh, multilateral negotiation on a moratorium on future uh, prospecting and drilling for oil and gas in the Arctic. So that's obviously been rather a controversial point. But So what, I, what I'm trying to say is that we do have a number of concrete targets, some of which are easily achievable, other of which are much more challenging, of course. But we felt that you know, as the part of the world believes that's in the sort of vanguard in terms of climate action, that we really needed to take a stand on this and uh, be consistent with our principles. It seems in some sense a uh, almost a no-win situation in that sense. Uh, you are, as, as you mentioned, the champion of multilateralism, a champion for uh, for aggressive climate action, and the idea of, of keeping the uh, hydrocarbons in the ground has not gone over so well in some quarters. I'm sure it's been celebrated in other quarters. But how do you reconcile these things, especially since the EU is a, a large consumer of hydrocarbons and they have to come from somewhere in the Arctic, not being so far from the EU? How do you how do you mm-hmm. sort of um, reconcile these these different interests? And how has it been received? You mentioned controversial. Have you been outright criticized, pushed back against? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we actually said in our paper was that we think that hydrocarbons should stay in the ground. But at the same time, we're calling for more investment in mining for minerals. You know, obviously, what we think is that there need to be two transformations if the world is going to be serious about the Paris process and about fighting climate change. A move away, a transformation away from reliance on hydrocarbons towards a carbon neutral economy. And that will require more exploration for these minerals that are such a vital part in this transformation for technologies that you need, whether it be electric cars or whatever, you do need these minerals. And there are big deposits of these minerals in parts of the Arctic. And we are far too reliant, frankly, in Europe at the moment on countries like China for imports of these. So that we've we've been accused of inconsistency. Myself, I don't see an inconsistency. I mean, as I say, uh, mining is always a very controversial issue. We've already It's already been made clear to us from the uh, indigenous peoples groups that they are very, very nervous about our call for more mineral mining. But we've made uh, it very clear in our communication that that has to be done according to the very tightest environmental and also social standards and taking account of the people that live there. But so, you know, there, there is no inconsistency. If you want to do this transformation, you have to have more minerals that will help with the carbon free future and less hydrocarbons. When it comes to our call for this moratorium obviously it's been greeted differently in different places environmental groups are of course delighted um frankly our member states have been very positive i mean this is actually a a communication of the eu institutions and at this point now a process starts where our member states will uh, actually sit down together and come up with what we call council conclusions basically uh, try and find a consensus 
view on our proposals and, and therefore sort of give us instructions from our member states on how to take things forward. So, I mean, the, the, the you know, the reaction from member states has been very positive. The the French have been very positive and, and we were sort of in, intrigued as to whether they would be because, of course, Total Energy, for example, is a big investor in Arctic gas. Um, we had um, obviously a, a relatively negative reaction from Norway, but it's a little bit more nuanced, I think, than people at first were saying. I mean, there was that uh, rather high-profile interview the new prime minister gave in the Financial Times shortly after our paper came out. But it wasn't a complete rejection. I mean, if you look at what happened in the Norwegian elections, the the whole question about oil exploration and gas exploration was the big issue at the end. So I think the debate has started. We've had, um, obviously, a a very negative reaction from Russia. I mean, a huge part of the Russian economy comes out of um, Arctic hydrocarbons. So that was to be expected. Um, but you know what we're not we're not naive. We don't grant licenses to explore for oil and gas. Also, we realize that gas will be an important transition energy source uh, as we move towards a carbon free future. So we're not naive, but what we really want is to start a serious conversation about this. We're not expecting overnight success, but I think perhaps five or ten years down the line, we may be asking ourselves why we even questioned ourselves about why we were doing this because I think the tide is turning. People realize that this is something that has to change. Uh, The International Energy Agency had a report earlier this year that basically said oil, coal and gas have to stay in the ground if we're in any way serious about the Paris targets. Um, And, you know, even even in Russia, they are very skeptical about our proposal. But, you know, if you look what's happening in Russia with the thawing of permafrost, this is a serious issue for them. A lot of, I think, 60% of Russia is built on permafrost. And we had our first major environmental disaster last summer with the Norilsk oil slick resulting from uh, collapsing infrastructure caused by thawing permafrost. So, you know, this is a, a discussion that we want to begin in earnest with people. We're not expecting overnight results. We will require uh, to have a gradual transformation. But we think that this has to happen more quickly than other people perhaps would like. I think it was interesting how you juxtaposed the hydrocarbon issue with the uh, rare earth mineral aspect, of course, important components for um, electric cars and things like that. So perhaps you could um, drill down, pardon the pun, you could drill down a bit on, on, the, on that aspect. Of the, the rare earth mining, of course, Greenland, I think, is, is what, uh, what you're most uh, focused on in that uh, sense. And, and the office you're opening in, in Nook uh, as part of this um, new policy, updated policy. Perhaps you could talk about that, how you intend to implement, pursue that, develop that together with partners in Greenland and also the, um, the uh, let's say, the, the geopolitical motivation of not being dependent upon China for these uh, rare earth minerals. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, basically, we are very, very reliant on not only China, but on a number of source countries for these minerals. And let's be honest, some of the countries that we're dependent on are not our most easy and reliable partners. So there, there is this desire for more strategic autonomy, as we call it, particularly in these minerals. Um, and if you look at a report recently by the Nordic Council of Ministers, they said that they believe that most of Europe's um, rare earth and, and uh, critical mineral supplies could, in principle, be sourced from the northern parts of Europe. Now, obviously, as I've said before, this has to be done very delicately with strictest possible environmental standards and social standards and taking account of the 
the people who live there. And that's why we put into our paper for the first time the principle of, of free prior and informed consent of uh, indigenous peoples before decisions are taken which affect their, their life and their livelihoods. But again, we, it's important that I make the point of where the powers of the EU start and where they stop. We have a critical mineral strategy in the EU, which is to, as I say, uh, look at greater exploitation of minerals. Uh, but we don't, again, have the, the final say. I mean, we have a list of critical minerals that we that we need, and we uh, are encouraging uh, our member states to make this a reality. Organizations, lenders like the European Investment Bank are looking at this. Again, they're very conscious of the fact that mining is always a sensitive issue, so they would also have to take a, a very careful stance on this. But we are we are pushing, we are encouraging, we are trying to put together the, the very toughest standards. We're talking... You know, with some of our major partners in the Arctic about how we could potentially work together on this. If you look at northern Sweden, northern Finland, also northern Norway, it's not a member state of the EU, but it's very closely uh, you know, associated with us. It's also in the European Economic Area, so therefore it actually does apply a lot of European legislation, for example, on the environment. But if you look at the northern parts of these countries, there is actually a lot of these kind of what you might call green industries uh, developing very fast. Sweden, for example, where you're based, talking about you know being the first producers of carbon-free iron and steel, uh, the latest by 2035. That's the sort of way we want to see things go. And there is a lot of this kind of uh, industrial activity going on. We're, we're trying to link more closely in the future our research programs to actual job creation possibilities and to our funding programs to try and encourage innovation and, and sort of innovative companies to create future orientated jobs in these northern regions. But if you if you actually ask politicians from northern Sweden, northern Finland, northern Norway, often you'll hear that there are the jobs there and there are the new technologies springing up, battery factories, whatever it may be, but there's not actually enough skilled labor uh, up there to actually fill the jobs. And so I suppose as policymakers, we can again try and nudge people towards uh, investing in the infrastructure that's necessary up there. It's fine to build a factory, but if you're going to encourage educated, skilled people to come up and work in these places, you actually have to offer them a way of life. So there have to be schools, there have to be leisure activities, etc. So, so it's a part of a bigger package, really. But for us, um, you mentioned Greenland. I mean, again, uh, I talked about oil and gas being the big issue in the Norwegian election, the last Greenlandic election, you know, minerals were the big, big issue there. And the party that won actually won partially on a platform of being against a uranium mine in Greenland. But they're much more enthusiastic, I think, in Greenland about the rare earths. Um, so there is a great deal of potential there. Um, obviously, again, there's the question of labor availability. There's the question of technology. There's the question of the fact that it is very remote in many cases and, and transport and infrastructure links. But again, I mean, if this is to happen, it has to be a, a decision for the Greenlandic authorities to take. You know, we can help. Uh, at the moment, the European Union sends just over 30 million euros per year to Greenland, and that is mainly spent by the Greenlandic government on education. But under the new arrangement, they've just decided to set aside 10% of that money for sort of green transition type uh, activities. So part of the reason for putting an office in Greenland is to really try and enhance our, our cooperation and our work with the Greenlandic authorities uh, and looking how we can best invest the money uh, and the know-how that we have in the future. So 
So it's, it's, it'll be interesting how it develops. I mean, there has been some investment in mining and some interest in mining in, in Greenland, not necessarily from European-based companies at this moment, but you know, we hope that that might change in the future. Uh, and you know, we will we will stay in close contact with the Greenlanders and uh, try and discuss it. I'm actually speaking at a at a conference, the Greenland Conference in Copenhagen later this week, which is uh, where, you know, obviously the Greenlandic Prime Minister will be there. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what, what the thinking is from their side about the, the whole mineral potential for mineral industries. When is this office in Nook expected to be opened? Well, it's quite, uh, it's, it's, it's been a long time in development. It's been a discussion that's been ongoing for a while, but we're pretty hopeful that the, the sort of formal decision to um, set it up can be taken in the first couple of months, I hope, of 2022. And then it'll be a question of finding premises and um, you know, finding staff. It'll be relatively small. I think it'll be three people to start with. But we, we look at the very positive experience of the American consulate that was set up a couple of years ago in Greenland. And I think we can talk with our American friends and hopefully uh, learn some lessons from that as well. So hopefully in relatively short order, it'll be there. You mentioned the American office in, in Nook as well. And it seems like Greenland is more and more becoming, in some ways, the ground zero of this uh, of this new Arctic great game that uh, some people say is uh, is emerging. And uh, one, one of the striking aspects, I think, of this new Arctic or this updated Arctic policy from the European Union is this rather strong, in my opinion, uh, geopolitical language, the, the framing of the, the EU's role in the Arctic as a geopolitical role. And uh, even talking about threats to EU interests and things like that, um, perhaps you could elaborate a bit mm. on that. And uh, and as part of that, and maybe we can we can use this as a follow up question. But uh, this this idea of, of a great power competition that's emerging in the Arctic, and usually it's been discussed as a three way competition: United States, Russia, and China. Not so often the European Union mentioned as part of this sort of geopolitical dimension of this competition that's taking place or, or let's say it's expected to take place or emerging or however you want to describe it. But um, perhaps you could talk about that, about the geopolitical aspects of this updated strategy and what you see as the EU's role as a geopolitical actor in the Arctic. Okay, yeah. I mean, the the, the thing in, in the sort of EU jargon is called a joint communication from the high representative and the commission. And that reflects the fact that um, you know the high representative is our foreign policy chief, basically, and the commission is the people who deal primarily with EU internal policy. So you know it, it does reflect the fact that Arctic policy to the European Union is domestic policy and foreign policy. The very first line of our policy document says the EU is in the Arctic, and that's you know people may raise eyebrows, and uh, but I mean it's just a fact. We have three member states who are Arctic states. Uh, Finland calls itself an entirely Arctic state. Large parts of Sweden are in the Arctic Circle. Uh, and of course, the Kingdom of Denmark has uh, has Greenland and also has the Faroe Islands, which see themselves as having an Arctic role as well. So, you know, we're, we're there, we're, we're involved. And, and the thing that surprised me when I took this job about 18 months ago was just how much we actually do in the Arctic already. I mean, we invest heavily in the Arctic, uh, whether it be our kind of development funds that fund so much in northern Sweden and Finland, whether it be science and research. I already talked about spending a quarter of a billion euros on, on Arctic research over seven years, whether it be our funds to Greenland. But it's, 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 beyond, it's beyond money as well. I mean, we are legislators for five of the eight Arctic states, uh, particularly, you know, if you look at the environment, you know, Finland, Sweden and Denmark obviously have to uh, 
implement our environmental law, but also as members of the economic area, the European economic area, Norway and Iceland do too. So we have a, a big sort of legislative footprint, if you like, in the Arctic. Uh, we're also, you know, being big industrial countries, we are also responsible for some of the negative things that are happening in the Arctic. But at the same time, we are also kind of leading the charge to try and, you know, slow uh, global warming. And of course, it's not the activities of the four to five million people who live in the Arctic that's causing Arctic melting. It's the activities of the 7.8 billion people who live south of the Arctic Circle. So, you know, we, we have to deal with these things on a global level. But at the same time, there are things you can do more locally, whether it be taking measures to you know, research how to fight permafrost thaw or reducing black carbon emissions, putting in very tough uh, environmental standards for mining and for exploration of resources. You know, we, we do have a major footprint. If you look at, for example, our satellite systems, Copernicus and Galileo, they are widely regarded as the world's best. And they have a ma an amazing range of functionalities, whether it be, you know, measuring permafrost melt or ice melt or sea level rise or temperatures or, or whether it be providing 5G coverage for future connectivity in the Arctic. So there's, there's a lot of stuff we do. Uh, on the environmental side, we're also, you know, pushing for maritime protected areas in, in the Arctic. Uh, we're kind of leading lights in this um, moratorium agreement on fishing in the central Arctic Ocean. So there's, you know, a huge amount of stuff that we do. So we, we are, whether people like it or not, we are in the Arctic and we are major influences of the Arctic and major Arctic players. And it really fits in with, with our desire to be, you know, in, in the past, the EU's Maybe I mean I've 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 had a career communicating on behalf of the EU, and uh, we're rather too modest about our work sometimes. Frankly, so we've too often been kind of marked out as a player rather than a player, and I think increasingly we want to be a player, and, and I think we are a player. I mean we are a big economic powerhouse, and we are also you know a very important geopolitical power. We like to think now clearly when it comes to Arctic decisions, the main responsibility, of course, lies with the eight Arctic states who have the territory of the Arctic. But, you know, a lot of things can only be dealt with in cross-border problems like uh, climate change can only be dealt with through international cooperation. So we have a big role to play there. One of the major, we, we have, a, for the first time ever, a distinct chapter on geopolitics in the Arctic and how we see our role there. Clearly, in terms of legal legislative competences, the, the more internal stuff, we have very, very concrete uh, European Union competencies, whether it be on management of fisheries or whatever. But increasingly in, in the sort of geopolitical side, you know, we, we have a major role to play. One of the big messages from our uh, new communication is that we want to enhance our role in Arctic governance fora, like the Arctic Council or the Barents Euro Arctic Council, the Northern Dimension. But we also want to try and mainstream Arctic affairs a internally so when people are making eu policies they should actually be thinking in terms of the arctic but also try and bring it into our diplomatic conversations with other players now obviously now last week for example i at my modest level had contacts with my american and canadian counterparts who happened to be in brussels for a major arctic conference but we need to be moving beyond I think contacts with just Arctic states. I mean, look at India. India is developing an Arctic strategy. China calls itself a near Arctic state. It's had an Arctic strategy for, for, for two more than two years now. 
uh, we need to be talking about Arctic issues with these people because it's in everybody's interest. The worst cliche in the world, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic, just happens to be true. It's affecting everybody. So it's something that we really need to be talking about with everybody. Um, in terms of sort of power games in the Arctic, I mean, we, you know, our bottom line, as I said earlier, is that the Arctic has to remain a zone of peaceful cooperation. And in fact, our analysis is that it still is. The Arctic governance fora, like the Arctic Council, work very well. There has been uh, a build-up in, in military activity, particularly in Russia. But why is that? No, not complacency, but it tends to reflect more global geopolitical rivalry rather than Arctic-specific issues. Russia is also, I think, feeling more exposed. A, it wants to exploit the Northern Sea Route and the hydrocarbons that it possesses in the Arctic. But B, its coastline is now much more exposed than it used to be. So in a way, it's not entirely surprising that there's more military activity. Clearly, it is a cause of concern, and clearly there has been reaction from the NATO side, from the US and so forth. But we, you know, we think that so far, the Arctic is a cooperative region, and we hope that it remains so. People have commented, and I think, I think we are confident that it can remain so if people continue to talk and, and use the various fora that there are. People wonder why we didn't really mention China very much in our paper. We did make reference to China and its growing role. Clearly, China is investing heavily in, in LNG, for example, in Russia, and it's interested in the Northern Sea Route. But, you know, our bottom line is that the rules of the game governing business in the Arctic region is the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and people need to obey the rules. Now, some people have said that China is kind of upbigging its role in, in the northern waters in the Arctic, whilst at the same time telling people that they can't have uh, similar rights in the South China Sea, for example. So there are kind of you know, people, there are concerns in some parts of the world about this. But so far, China, in our view, has come into this sort of Arctic game in a rather in a rather quiet way. You know, that's not to say that they won't increase their influence further down the line. But you know, the most important thing is that they and everybody else does so in line with international law. So there is there is clearly a power game to an extent. And whenever I talk to you know webinars or conferences or journalists, they they tend to get very excited about the hard security threats to the to the Arctic. But our view is is that at the moment there is not the imminent danger of a of a flare up caused by Arctic specific issues. The biggest threat that the Arctic region faces is from climate change. Now some of that threat, you know, clearly climate change has security uh, knock on effects as well whether it be human security, environmental security, or even hard security. But climate change is the thing that is the clear and present danger in the Arctic, and that's what the international community needs to be dealing with. It's interesting. You, you nuance the uh, the idea of security. It's not just the uh, the military aspects, but to these other other um, ways of understanding security. And I mean that makes me think about some of these in the context of China, for instance. Uh, some of these larger projects that China has either proposed or has developed in uh, in the European Arctic. For instance, uh, their potential involvement with a, a rail a railway from um, from the Barents Sea down. Through Finland into the into the European continent, does the European Union have any perspective or opinion about China's involvement in some of these things that are not necessarily security, but could have security implications further down the line? Yeah, I mean we have a we have a sort of global China policy, and we you know we have a a pragmatic 
principled policy towards China, that you're not going to make China go away by burying your head in the sand. So you have to sort of deal with it in a, in a pragmatic and practical way whilst you know, pushing as hard as you can your principles. We don't share China's views on human rights, on democracy and, and, and freedom of expression, etc. But we can hopefully work together with China. And that's what I meant about sort of extending our Arctic conversations beyond the purely Arctic states. We, we have to find a way of, of doing business with China and, and you know, encouraging them to, to do things based on, on international law and, and play by the rules. Obviously, it's it's a tendency that's happening all over the world. China is in the ascendant, and it is investing. Yeah, you mentioned cable. I mean, there are cable projects, there are port projects. Clearly, they have an interest in uh, in investing in infrastructure. And if you're a, a municipality up north somewhere, perhaps it's very very tempting to uh, to take Chinese investment. Uh, so that's something we have to deal with. You know, we, we do have our own approach to infrastructure in the European Union. We recently, a couple of weeks ago, released our own sort of planned infrastructure project, which was sort of likened to the Belt and Road. I mean, China now has its Polar Silk Road, uh, the thing you've just been referring to. And we do, in our policy paper, we do talk about some of the um, first the sort of digital connectivity possibilities that our policies can can help but also more physical infrastructure as well. But again, we, we come back to the, the division of responsibilities within the European Union. We can have our global projects and we can make investment possibilities available, but it's really up to the, the national authorities to, to make use of these possibilities. So, yeah, I mean, the, the watchword on China is we have to cooperate with China, we have to stick to our principles, and we have to make sure that investments in the European Arctic are done according to fair investment practices. The sort of basic values that the European Union is based on are respected. Uh, we're not going to stop China. We have to find a very practical and principled and practical way of working together with them or working side by side with them or in the same theatre as them, at least. I mean, is there any red lines or gray areas in terms of this, how to interpret this, whether certain infrastructures would be considered too sensitive, too critical, whether it's IT systems, ports? Is there any place yeah. where you discover again, again, yes. I mean, they're, 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 well, I can't point to definitive red lines, but if you look at the uh, discussion that was being had in the European Union about you know, 4 and 5G infrastructure and Huawei uh, and their, in their investments in, in certain European countries. But again, this is something where the European Union, uh, clearly we have an interest in ensuring that vital security infrastructure is not compromised. But again, a lot of these decisions lie with national authorities and we can we can certainly provide guidance and strong, strong views on this. But, you know, I, I can't point to any definitive red lines at the moment, but we, you know, we, we keep a, a very close watching brief on this. And if we go back to Russia for a moment, of course, right now, the one of the um, main concerns is the situation in Ukraine and a uh, potential Russian even invasion there. It uh, does bring back uh, thoughts of 2014 and the situation in Crimea, which had uh, quite a negative influence on uh, relations with Russia in general uh, between Russia and the West and spilled over to some extent to the Arctic as well. Do you fear that a situation, a developing situation there in Ukraine today could spill over and undermine what is otherwise a, a still a rather cooperative region in the Arctic, this idea of Arctic exceptionalism? Do you feel that that is under threat from an EU perspective by what's happening now in uh, Ukraine? 
Well, first point to make is that we hope that um, the worst predictions that people are making won't come to pass. It's a very worrying situation what's happening on the on the border of Ukraine, and we hope that this will be uh, resolved in a, a responsible manner. Our foreign minister is actually meeting on this, as we speak now on Monday morning to discuss this issue. So, um, you know, we uh, we are watching what's happening, and we have various sort of tools in our uh, in our toolbox that we can use. When the Crimea situation and the and the Eastern Ukraine situation popped up in 2014, we immediately uh, imposed uh, quite tough sanctions on Russia and members of the Russian um, regime, and that did have knock-on effects. Clearly, they took counter counter sanctions against us, and one of the uh, effects of that is that the European Union has not as yet been granted observer status in the Arctic Council. That said that doesn't really affect negatively our ability to work in the Arctic Council or in other Arctic govern- governance fora because in the Swedish ministerial in 2013, the decision was taken that we would basically be given the same access and rights as formal observers. So we do take part in a number of Arctic Council working groups, expert groups. They appreciate our expertise and our, frankly, our financing uh, towards some projects. And, you know, I was recently in Salakart in northern Russia as an observer to the uh, senior Arctic officials meeting of the Arctic Council. So we have managed to continue working in the Arctic Council. And again, our involvement in Arctic Council governance doesn't stop at the Arctic Council. As I mentioned before, we have the Barents Euro Arctic Council, where we are together with Russia and the Barents Corporation has been rather good. We have uh, a thing called the Northern Dimension Policy Framework. Uh, which is between ourselves, Russia, Norway, and Iceland. And it's a, uh, it has four programs, an environmental program, a transport program, a culture program, and a health program. And basically, on a sort of practical day-to-day level, the uh, work that we do uh, in the Arctic with Russia is still relatively good and successful. It's a, it's a very sort of practical, pragmatic cooperation on projects that are of mutual benefit. We don't do anything with Russia that isn't of benefit to ourselves. We don't do it for sort of altruistic reasons, but um, our work on black carbon in Russia, our work on wastewater treatment, uh, that is all because it is of use to ourselves as well. But I mean, generally we found that the cooperation from the Russians on the on the working level has been very good. We hope that that can continue. I mean, the next project is uh, we're looking at feasibility studies about lifting a couple of Soviet-era nuclear submarines that are lying rusting on the bottom of the Barents Sea, which potentially pose a very serious environmental threat if their reactors start to leak into the sea. So we would be looking into that because it is a benefit not only to ourselves, but also to Russia and the Barents region in general. So we, we do see that the Arctic is an area where we can still cooperate uh, with Russia to our mutual benefit, and hopefully that will continue. I mean, hopefully this latest crisis over Ukraine will will pass by without anything serious happening, but we'll have to see, of course. But, you know, our, our interest, again, over and over again, I say it, is to ensure that the, the Arctic remains a, a region of cooperation. And you, you mentioned Arctic exceptionalism. I think that still does apply, and hopefully that will continue. In the context of um, Arctic Council observers, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the EU has been a long-time applicant, still has not been um, let in, I guess, largely due to, to, to Russian opposition to that. But you have several member states that are that are not only um, 
members of the Arctic Council, one of the three of the eight, but also you have, I think, six of the uh, observer yeah, states to indeed. the Arctic Council as yeah. well. But one of them, I guess, you recently lost, and that would be uh, the UK. Just out of curiosity, how has Brexit, I mean, UK being quite a prominent uh, historically and, and currently very uh, important player in the, in the Arctic and Antarctic, has Brexit had any impact upon the uh, engagement of the European Union in the Arctic? Not as such. I mean, we're going through a bit of a difficult period with the UK. Obviously, it'll take a while before the sort of relationship settles down because they're, you know, they're, they're sort of extracting themselves from previous commitments lasting more than 40 years. And, it, and there is a sort of a difficult political period that we're in at the moment. But uh, but the, the good thing is, is, as you mentioned, there are a lot of European non-Arctic states who are, have got Arctic policies and are um, observers to the Arctic Council. And we, we are pretty much on the same page, even with our British friends on Arctic issues. I think really the, the main effect of Britain leaving the European Union and the Arctic is that Britain is no longer part of some of our Arctic programs. I know, for example, that what we call the Northern Periphery and Arctic Program, which is part of our regional policy programs, which provides quite a lot of useful money for Arctic and neighbouring areas. I know that, for example, the, the Scots and the Northern Irish were previously very active in that program and are no longer able to be so. So I think... Uh, you know, if I can be frank, I think the negative effect of Brexit is more on the British side than on the European side. I mean, we're, it's in our interests to keep up close relations with um, with uh, with the British on on the Arctic. And it's very interesting. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish First Minister, she uh, she uh, is a regular uh, appearer at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, and they uh, the Scottish are very you know, very visible and very active in, in the Arctic context. And I think they, they are very keen, for example, to, to keep up the keep up the links as well. So hopefully over the coming months, once things calm down a bit post-Brexit, we will be able to get back to a good working relationship with the British on, on Arctic matters. And another pretty uh, significant change um, in geopolitics, I guess, in, in many aspects, was the uh, change of administrations in the United States from uh, Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Has that had any any impact on, from from your perspective, on Arctic relations, Arctic geopolitics, EU's role in the Arctic, or has it been some sort of continuity from one administration to the next? Sort of yes and no, actually. I mean, on on the kind of technical working level, in terms of the senior Arctic official of the of the U.S., even during the Trump period, I mean, the the cooperation uh, on a sort of day to day level was 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 good. Obviously, the the big thing that happened, or well, a, was the proposal to purchase Greenland, which actually had the knock on effect of, I think, helping Greenland in a way of raising its profile. But B um, was the um, Rovaniemi uh, Arctic Council ministerial, where un, you know un, unprecedentedly there was no ministerial declaration agreed because of the Trump administration's uh, resistance to mentions of, of uh, climate change. But I think you know the arrival of the new Biden administration has smoothed that over. We now had in Reykjavik at the last ministerial meeting not only a consensual declaration, but also a long-term strategic plan for the Arctic Council for the next 10 years. Uh, obviously, the US has really put in place already a very high-powered Arctic administration in various parts of the administration. There's, there's a team in the White House now. Uh, there's the new um, scientific body. You know, we have the I met last week Jim DeHart, the US um, State Department Arctic coordinator. You know, They're taking the Arctic very seriously. And, and massively oversimplify it. I think Trump saw uh, the Arctic as a security issue. Obama previously had seen it as a 
sort of environmental issue. And I think for Biden, probably is a combination of the two. I mean, I think that's the, a reflection of the way the world has moved on and the Arctic has moved on over the last eight years or so. So I think um, it'll 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 certainly be easier for us to work with our American friends on the Arctic in future because they're back in the fold and back in the uh, Paris Agreement. And they have John Kerry, of course, who's now a very high-profile climate change figure. So I think that the sort of overall message that we've had in the last few months is that uh, we're going to be cooperating much more closely with the U.S. On, on these big issues in the future, which is great news. All right, Ambassador Mann, as we wind this discussion down, uh, where do you see the next policy going and where do you see generally the EU going in the Arctic overall? Well, we'd like to you know, be more more active in the Arctic, even more active in the Arctic. We'd like to be more visible in the Arctic, I think. And, and you know, we have now a, a paper that's been put together over 18 months, and now we actually have to make it happen. The, the writing the paper is one thing. I mean, it was a quite a job of work, actually, because we, we could have continued um, amending it forever. You just have to get to a point at some stage where you draw the line and you say, this is where we are now. Because as I, as I explained earlier, things are changing so fast. This has to be, this can't just be a, a kind of, piece of paper set in stone and that is all we do i mean obviously we will continue to develop our policies depending upon how things develop in the arctic one of the things we brought out in our paper was that we want to get much more involved in research into the floor of permafrost and how to deal with the effects of that so we, we hope that you know on the basis of the paper that we've got we can we can further develop certain bits of our policy and who knows you know new developments might crop up that need to be dealt with so it's not we're not sort of locking ourselves into where we are now it'll be an evolving process frankly i mean as i said we we've written the paper now we have to implement it some bits will be relatively easy but you know it's going to be we're going to be working very hard on trying to get a kind of scientific consensus on fishing in the central arctic ocean for example pushing for maritime protected areas pushing for a bvnj for the management of the seas in in areas outside of national jurisdiction trying to push the biodiversity process forward, trying to push the climate change process forward, but also just trying to, you know, we've said that we want to be a geopolitical player in the Arctic. We have to make that happen. So we have to really bring this into our conversations with people and, and make people aware that we have not only day-to-day -day interests in the European Arctic, but more strategic interests in the wider Arctic region. So, you know, we, we hope to, you know, we, we have to remain within our legal powers set out in our overarching treaties, our kind of rule book for the European Union. But we do want to, to the extent that we have those powers, use them for good, I suppose. I mean, it all sounds very altruistic and, you know, holier than now. But I think we do have a, a positive role to play in the governance and the, of the Arctic and in trying to slow down and hopefully halt the big change that is threatening the Arctic, but also threatening the whole world. So we want to be players. We want to put into practice what we've written down in this paper. And we want to um, be cooperative partners, not only with the Arctic states, but uh, but more generally in, in making sure that uh, what happens in the Arctic and the potentially disastrous changes in the Arctic have slowed down because this has knock-on effects all over the world. And if we're serious about our geopolitical role, we have to be very serious about what we do in the Arctic. I mean, what would you say are your main 
assets or tools for implementing and putting into practice some of these ideas that in this in this policy. I mean, science diplomacy, I guess, is one of the the dimensions mm-hmm. of this diplomacy in general. Your your position, you you're embodying, I guess, one very important um, tool of the uh, European Union and becoming more visible, more active, more engaged in the Arctic. What other what other tools? The the moral authority of the European Union. Uh, what are your main assets for really implementing some of these ideas in the uh, policy? Well, I think, you know, we are, as you say, science diplomacy has been the beginning. It was really the start of our engagement in the Arctic. I think that has been added to, I mean, I mentioned already our our satellite technology. I mean, we are technology leaders. Uh, We are legislators for vast areas of the Arctic. We are big economic players. Uh, And I think it's fair to say we're also very much taking the lead in, for example, the climate action process. So I think, you know, hopefully our aim to be, you know, mainstreaming Arctic issues in our diplomacy will bear fruit. The big threat being climate change, the fact that we are pushing the global community on on climate action is going to be a major thing for the Arctic as well. I mean, we were the first to pronounce ourselves as aiming for climate neutrality by 20, carbon neutrality by 2050. Others have followed suit. So I think, uh, as you say, I think our our kind of moral leadership is a, is a very, very important factor here as well. And clearly not everyone is on the same page as us when it comes to, uh, to values. But I mean, we have very big, major and important allies within the Arctic. I'm thinking, you know, the US, Canada, Norway, uh, who are very much like minded with us now. So, um, you know, we, we can we can lead through science. We can lead through diplomacy we can lead through lawmaking uh, on a local level in the arctic and hopefully are you know the, the 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 world is difficult for you know if you look around more broadly for those who believe in liberal democracy and freedom of speech and democracy uh, the rule of law but i think so far so good in the arctic that has been the way things have gone and we hope that we can continue to kind of take a lead on that and and take people with us. I think when people see the success of the European Union's Green Deal in cutting carbon emissions and the fact that you can have economic growth as well as cut pollution and carbon emissions, I think maybe further down the line, people will see that we are a good example to follow. As you mentioned earlier, perhaps you were too modest before, but it seems like the European Union certainly is becoming more uh, bold, more assertive, and uh, more and more visible in the Arctic. So Ambassador Michael Mann... EU Special Envoy for Arctic Matters. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. Thanks very much for asking me. I enjoyed that chat very much. And, you know, it's very good that, you know, to get the platform on excellent events like this to actually put our views forward. And uh, this is part of us becoming less modest, hopefully. So uh, thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, we'd love to have you back at some point in the future to update us. I'd be delighted to, yes. Fantastic. Okay, Ambassador Man, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for Polar Geopolitics. My name's Eric Baglia. Thank you for listening. Be back for more episodes in the near future here on this podcast.